MailChimp presents. MailChimp presents. This week, I sat down with legendary artist David Byrne to talk about one of the songs that started him down the path of a blindingly successful solo career that spans more than four decades. And we talked about what it takes to keep your music fresh after 45 years in an industry where the average life expectancy of an artist is about five minutes. I'm Shirley Manson, and this is The Jump. We are here today to talk to you about a moment in your career where you took some kind of, there was a change in direction or there was a leap of faith or something happened and you changed your trajectory. And much to my surprise, I have to confess, you picked Loco de Amor from your second solo record. Yeah, and uh, I can explain. Good. You'd better. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I figured the obvious choice would be a song that was a big hit um, that everybody knows. And and I thought, yes, but everybody knows those. And then I realized there's this song that kind of happened by accident, and it really did change the direction I was going in for a number of years. So it starts with me uh, in New York. Uh, This would be sort of mid-80s. And... Salsa, the kind of Latin music, was a big part of the music of, of New York during the 70s and into the 80s. And, and yet it was kind of its own bubble, kind of like there's the rock bubble, there was a punk bubble, there's a jazz bubble, there's a, and there's the salsa bubble. And, I th- and they often never, never met. And I was a little bit curious. So I started buying some of the records. This was vinyl. Often from a record store that was in, in the 42nd Street subway station. It's very Moscow. Yes, it is. Yeah. It's very Moscow. <laughs> you'd, go, you'd have to go down the stairs into the dank subway station, and, and there was the little record shop that had really the greatest stuff in that, in that genre. And so I would get some. Sometimes I'd find ones that I loved. I'd put them on, and I'd dance around my loft in downtown New York, and I just thought, oh, this music is so great for dancing. The vocals are so sensuous, but also and really passionate. It was the kind of thing that I needed in my kind of personal life at that point, kind of kind of break loose of who I was and who I'd, you know, who I was being uh, branded as. And I realized that I personally wanted to find an escape from that. And I was finding that, just putting these records on and dancing around by myself in my in my loft. And a lot of the records were by a woman named Celia Cruz who was kind of the queen of uh, Latin music. And I loved her voice. It was like cut. It had this kind of this, whatever, this nasal or sound that just cut right through.
quite an androgynous voice in a funny way, isn't it? It's not the, like this typically beautiful woman's voice. Yeah. But it, I, I found it just like, it seemed to me to be coming straight from the heart and it just cut right through the sound of it. Um, that I thought, wow, this is really amazing. And some great songs too. So I'm doing this. Uh, this is going on and I'm making little mixtapes for myself of my favorite tunes and kind of getting into this. So the film director, Jonathan Demi had done a movie called Something Wild, and he was looking for a, a title track for the opening sequence. And so he came to me and said, can you write a song for this? I want something that gives a sense of Manhattan as being an island. And, and I said, oh, I think I can do that, but I have a condition. My dream is to do a duet with Celia Cruz. Wow. And can you, can you make that happen? <laughs> <laughs> and so I thought, well, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't like an in, insane demand, but it was an unusual <laughs> demand. <laughs> and, you know, given where I come from, given where, you know, the music I was known for. Uh, but they said, yeah. We could, uh, so they asked around. They talked to her manager or her, who was like her husband and a, a trumpet player. Uh, they talked to her label guy, kind of creative guy. Uh, named Johnny Pacheco um, and some others, and they said yes, we're going to do it. Uh, so did they I know wrote, who you were at this point? They probably thought of me as like this rock, punk rock guy, mm -hmm. and they probably thought this is the weirdest idea in the <laughs> world. Uh, you know, <laughs> what does this guy want to do with us? Um, but they did. They, they knew that they, they did know my name, uh, and they must have thought what the hell does this guy, you know, want to do with us? Uh, but they also thought, we want our music to be heard by a wider audience, and maybe this guy is going to help us do that. Mm -hmm. So I wrote this song, and Johnny Pacheco helped add some little bits to the chorus and whatever, and we he put together this incredible band, a guy named uh, Ray Barreto was on Congas. It was just this dream band. heavyweights, right? Yeah, they were heavyweights. And they put it all together. I come in with the song. And from their point of view, the song was this kind of weird hybrid. For me, I thought I was doing a Latin song. <laughs> <laughs> so hold on, let, let me take you back just slightly first. So yeah. when you wrote it, where did you write it? In your apartment? Oh, I must have written it in New York in my apartment, wherever, that loft where I was dancing around. And you wrote it on what? I probably wrote it on just like a, either an electric guitar, acoustic guitar, and a little drum. I probably had a little drum machine that I made a little, put a little program in. <laughs> um, this was before, you know, we could record sure. multi-tracks on our laptops or any of that kind of stuff. Yeah. This was kind of whatever you could do. Sometimes, uh, <laughs> sometimes... I would do multi-tracks by 
recording some parts on a cassette recorder, playing that cassette recorder, and then playing along with that. So wow. it, you can imagine yes. the quality went down very, very steeply. <laughs> <laughs> Eventually, I had one of those four tracks, uh, and then it was a thing you could record four tracks on a cassette. I might have put like the drum machine on one track and then myself and some harmonies and stuff on the other track. And so you fi you finished it and then took it to Celia Cruz and on her whole team. When, when you say finished it, it was very rough. It, my demos tend to be very rough. I want to leave room for, you know, this dream band to have some input into it. So I didn't like fill in all the details and it wasn't like, well, the bass part goes like this or whatever. I yeah. thought, no, they, they will know how to do this best. Um, yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Um, so where did you play it for them? Did you take, did you go down to a studio and play it for them or did you send a cassette or? They came to my, my loft, my, to my place. We played the song, we talked about it and just, and they would go, oh, I think, I think this is, they would discuss it amongst themselves and go, I think this is actually this kind of feel. And they would talk about, I think we should get so-and-so on piano on this song, or I think we should get this. And then Johnny would go, and what if we, what if Celia had an answer vocal to David's wow. vocal on this line or this line and this line? How do we do that? And let's have some, some of it in Spanish and some of it in English. So it kind of got hammered out a little bit that way. And uh, after that, it was just, okay, now we go, go to the studio in a, you know, in a few days. Right. It might have been a pretty big studio because we wanted to record a good part of the band live. big is the band? I, I couldn't really tell from listening to the track how many people you had in there. As in Latin, a lot of Latin bands, instead of a drummer, there's like three percussion players, usually. Wow. And then you have like a bass, piano. I was playing rhythm guitar. So that's kind of the core group. And then there's the horn section, yeah, which may have been overdubbed later. And was Celia there when you first went in to record, or did she come I later? think we recorded, we may have recorded the tracks before she came in. Right. Being the queen, we didn't want to have her waiting around. <laughs> you can't keep the queen waiting. Yes, yes. <laughs> okay, so we record the track, and it, there's elements in the lyrics. Uh, it's kind of a love song, but it's also a song about the city, because Jonathan wanted something that talked about... Manhattan as being a kind of island. And I thought, oh, island, tropical island. So let's treat Manhattan as if it's a tropical island. And 
she and Johnny added some kind of uh, Santeria, Yoruba, kind of African chant stuff at the end. I thought that was really cool. Um, so it, Jonathan loved it. It worked really well in the title of the movie. And eventually it ended up on uh, a record I did called uh, Ray Momo, which was the whole album was done with Latin musicians. Yeah. But that that album and the album I did after that only happened because of that session with Celia Cruz. Um, and Remomo means king of the carnival, right? Or king of the carnival? Yes, carnivals. king of the carnival. And it kind of means the fat buffoon king of the carnival. Right, yeah. And then there's this kind of lament at the beginning, right? It's sort of when she Celia starts singing, there's this really... Oh, yeah, there's just wordless chant yeah. in the beginning. Um, Which sounds and I, mournful and, and yeah, like a lament, it sounds to me. And then this party music comes in. It's kind of fantastic. It feels very transcendent in a way. Yeah. Kind of mournful and melancholy, but also transcendent. And I thought, oh, I love that that feeling. And then it bursts into this kind of dance celebration thing. Yeah. contrast yeah so yeah as I said that that uh, the effect of this song and me doing that was to to empower me to feel like well I I could do more of this if I wanted to I could do more songs and work with these kind of musicians and and maybe it could work I can see that this could work um, so this was the first song then of the whole album. Yes, right. And it, I didn't know there was going to be an album right. at that point. And at that point, Talking Heads were going through a pretty difficult period. I, although I, I had done kind of some things on my own before, but I thought maybe I'll do a whole album on my own. Right. So I thought, okay, if I'm going to do this, I can't do something that sounds like a Talking Heads record because then it's like, well, why bother doing it on your own unless you're just trying to make more money? Um, <laughs> but. People do that. Yes, they do. Uh, <laughs> yes. So I thought, I'll do something that I couldn't do with them, which is I'll do work with these Latin musicians. So I ended up doing a yeah, a whole record. Uh, it was uh, maybe not that, well <laughs> not that well received in this country. But uh, when I went on tour with it, it, it was actually very well received in Latin America, which shocked me because I thought, I have to tour this to Latin America. I have to face the music, so to speak. It's a bit <laughs> like taking Coles to Newcastle. Yeah. You know, this is their music. And here's, you know, the white punk rock or whatever playing kind of their music. And I could be laughed out of town. Uh, but it actually it was very well received there. And psychologically... Or personally, it did a lot for me. It allowed me to dance more on stage, to feel kind of this sensuous rhythm and music and 
these melancholy melodies and all this kind of stuff that allowed me to kind of break free of being the angsty, um, angsty guy that I had kind of been pigeonholed as being, and that I was, that was certainly a part of who I was at that time, uh, but allowed me to kind of break, break out of that in some ways, um, which was a whole process that I was going through personally and musically and everything like that. So it had a huge impact on how I am personally and the kind of music that I could do uh, from then on. Uh-huh. And, you know, I was really struck by you willing to, you know, speak on the matters of whiteness and your determination to always promote music from other cultures and, and different ideas and different philosophies and so on and so forth. And I feel like that was the precursor to, you know, a lot of music becoming more multi-racial, multi-ethnic, you know, more broad way of looking at music. It's a very modern way, or certainly back then, it was such a modern way of looking at music. This white art rocker coming in and working with Latin, you know, salsa beats. and It was a very odd combination. I mean, there were jazz artists that, that worked with Latin musicians. That was fairly common. Mm-hmm. I could get with those grooves and kind of add kind of jazz solos to it and all that kind of stuff. But for quite a few decades, there had been a real divide there. So that, yeah, really was, it was an unusual thing. Now, as you, as you said, now, no connection to me whatsoever, but now there's like reggaeton beats in hip hop and in pop. And then there's kind of a lot of African artists who are doing kind of electronic beats and things, um, and you just go, wow, how did that all happen? Nothing to do with me. Well, that's not true. I think, actually, you have absolutely pushed forward the, these ideas of, of, you know, different influences. It could be. It could be. I know that I was very excited that um, Hank Shockley, one of the guys on the Public Enemy, was a fan of that record. And I thought, whoa, <laughs> whoa. Well, now, now we're that's now we're talking, and I was also really happy that uh, I went one time to a big disco here back in the, the days. It was called the Paradise Garage, mm-hmm. and the DJ played a track off that record. Thought, <laughs> wow! Well, I thought, wow. Yeah. Now my yes, I can die happy now. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I mean, it's a beautiful record. It's really amazing, but I to, to play it in a disco, I'm kind of like blown away. I'm like, wow, that must have sounded yes. pretty freaky. Yeah, I think they might have pumped up the bass a Jump is hosted by me, Shirley Manson, and is produced by Dan Gallucci. The Jump is an original series from MailChimp, produced in partnership with Little Everywhere. Dan Gallucci and Jane Marie are the executive producers. The Jump is mixed by Mike Richter, original music composed by Rishikesh Hirway. And a very special thanks goes out to our wonderful booker, Mara Davis. Mm-hmm.